This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Zimring. This podcast is intended to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders who are committed to bringing innovation and compassion to the problems that affect us all. With in-depth conversations, these women share how they became passionate about finding solutions and implementing them in their organizations and communities. These stories inspire us and expand our awareness of what is possible. We have a window of time, and knowing there are practical solutions that we as the human species can implement to restore climate stability to our planet gives us the opportunity to take action. You realize that you actually have the ability to affect change for the good. One of our solutions is to partner with Tree Sisters, and we make a donation to Restoring Forests on your behalf when you subscribe to our podcast and website. Please join us for today's conversation and subscribe on evoicesrising.com for past episodes and access to resources we have for you. Stay with us. Today, my guest is Lil Milagro Enriquez. Lil is the executive director and founder of Mycelium Youth Network, an environmental justice organization that prepares youth to be empowered, educated, and resilient as they face the challenges of climate change. Lil founded Mycelium Youth Network while confronting the smoke-filled air that was blanketing her community as a result of the California wildfires, exacerbated by climate change. She leveraged her previous experience from social and environmental activism to create an organizational structure that utilizes indigenous environmental traditions along with a rigorous STEAM curriculum, emphasizing hands-on learning. Lil also has expertise in participatory action and leadership, so she and her team have created programs that leverage the participation of youth voices in creating change. Her Dungeons & Dragons Gaming for Justice program is designed for unique, interactive solution and problem solving. Lil, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising. I'd like to start out with a little bit about your personal story and your background getting into environmental justice and activism. I know you were brought up in New Orleans, and even though you weren't there when Katrina hit, some of your family were, and they suffered trauma and dislocation. But you also have stories of rebuilding resilience and community organization. So could you share with us some of your experiences? Yeah, so... My name is Lil Milagro Enriquez. I'm so grateful to be here on this podcast and identify as a person of detribalized descent from Guzatlan, which is now known as El Salvador. And when I think a lot about my own journey and my own life experience, like I always really frame it within my own family legacy and what my ancestors have been able to do, the work that they've started to leave for me to be able to participate and continue on today. And so I always feel like it's a journey both of myself, but then also taking into account everything, like I said, my ancestors have done to be able to allow me to even get here. So 
I think a lot about, especially my matrilineal side, which is again from Cusatlan, now known as El Salvador. And I think for me, like the roots of like my activism really go back to like my family and to my family watching the ways in which like their land was like slowly stripped away from them and degraded. At one point, El Salvador was the biggest exporter of coffee to the United States. And so a lot of the Salvadorian landscape had to be deforested from old growth forests in order to plant these like shade grown coffee trees. And so, and how that like really led to my family and others like my family, you know, really pushing for additional rights as they were getting, you know, clamped down on by the Salvadorian government, which then led to the civil war in El Salvador, which then also led to like my mom's and my father's like migration story. My dad's from Nicaragua, but they met in New Orleans where I was born. And I grew up with a really working class mother. Like she was trying to work to put me and my brother through school. And so I had that extended network of aunts and uncles and my dad who didn't live with us because they separated when I was really young. But when I thought a lot about, you know, environmental activism, like it was something that I hadn't necessarily had any connection with. Like I felt a deep connection to immigrant rights because my family was a a family of immigrants and to workers' rights. And so it really wasn't until like I even got to college though, that that really, that even that activism and connection started to happen. I started to realize, oh my goodness, all these things that I've experienced my entire life, the classism, the sexism, the racism, they all actually have names. And not only do they have names, but people are trying to deeply understand what's happening. And in trying to deeply understand what's happening, they're actively taking rules to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. And it was a light bulb moment in my own head and for my own activist journey. And then I remembered, you know, like you had said, like I'd gone, my family had gone through Katrina. We had left a few years before New Orleans to Colorado. And I remembered like watching people that looked just like my family, that looked just like the friends I had grown up with really go through Katrina and talking to my aunt and my uncle and my father who had, for months, I didn't know where my father was when Hurricane Katrina hit. And I knew that there was something there, but environmental activism didn't feel like it was real enough to my community because there weren't environmental activists that I knew that really looked like me. And so I saw my journey mostly reflected in the lives of other Black and Brown community members that, again, were working on labor rights and immigrant rights. So I started to get really politicized in college and started to see the ways in which environmental racism was deeply connected also to classism and deeply connected to racism. And so it was just kind of like in the back of my head. And I started working at spread out of college at the Justice for Janitors campaign with the Service Employees International Union, which is really near and dear to my heart. Uh, because my father, I'd gone with him when I was younger to clean houses in New Orleans. And like I had known people like my aunts and that had done a lot of house cleaning to get themselves through school. And so you know, I'd gone through and like really went to like different organizations to try to figure out like, what is the issue that feels like it most deeply resonates with me that's going to be the hill I die on in many ways for activism. And so I joined a lot of different other nonprofit groups. I started to get really engaged post-college. I went in to do my master's degree in social and cultural anthropology here, which like led me to California. And I was still really searching for like, what's this thing that I really, really want to dedicate the rest of my life to? I know I'm committed to justice. I feel a deep connection to justice across like a range of different issues. It feels like, like I said, an ancestral legacy that I need to continue on. And then I had children and then the forest fire started happening here in California. And I thought like, 
environmental racism, environmental activism, climate change activism can't just be something that is in the back of my mind. It needs to be something that I'm actually actively taking a part of and actively moving on because now there's ramifications for so much of our future generations. Thank you. I really like what you're saying. And I'm wondering if being a mother is part of what drew you to working with youth. It did. It did. And so it was a shift in the way that I'd been thinking because before all of my activism and labor organizing was really around like labor rights and immigrant rights. And I started actually also working at this, at a school, a social justice school in the Bay area as a director of organizing to like support young people and being able to think this through. And then when I had young people, when I had two you know children, it just came alive for me in an entirely different way. And I thought ancestry is so important to me and I want to be, an ancestor that they can be proud of when I pass on to the next world. And I want to have it so that, you know, I know that youth are going to be the most impacted around climate change issues, regardless of race or class, but like youth are going to be the most impacted. So what can we be doing now to do everything we can to support them for what we know is going to happen. And I started talking to youth themselves and being like, what do you think about what's happening? What do you think about these forest fires that we're experiencing right now and that, you know, are only going to become more and more severe? What do you think about the drought? And youth themselves, like there was this fifth grade group of students that I played Dungeons and Dragons with. They said that they were terrified. They said that adults weren't talking to them and they felt so lost. And these are students that are much older than my kids because at the time my kids were four and one. And I thought, this is the thing that I want to spend the rest of my life deeply invested in doing is supporting young people so that they don't feel alone and that they feel like they're adults that are open to talking to them. And so from that, I really started Mycelium. Great. I'd love to talk about Mycelium because I studied Mycelium and Mycorrhiza in ecology. And I was so excited that somebody actually used the word mycelium to name their organization, Mycelium Youth Network, because I think it's a great metaphor for the way nature creates organization. Yes, it's definitely a metaphor. As a staff, we're learning about the Mycelium Network, like the fungi itself and like, what does it do? And we're bringing in some great fungi experts to like teach us as staff. But it really came out of these conversations with young people and with them saying what they wanted and needed. And I feel like so much of activism across like whatever issues you're talking about is listening to the people that are most impacted and then creating solutions that they can get behind and that they're excited about and that they can feel powerful doing. And so when I started Mycelium, I wanted it to be that for young people. And I wanted it to be a conversation with youth, particularly fifth through 12th grade students, right? Who are themselves like experiencing all of this like fear and anxiety. And I, and I didn't want them to just stay there. The majority of young people that we work with are black and brown students. And I wanted them to think about all of the ways that their ancestral traditions are powerful and are relevant and can serve as a guide for them moving forward. That everything that that we know is coming with climate change, they don't have to face alone. There's a whole legacy that is behind them of people that have been working in regenerative, sustainable relationship to the land. And like, what are things that they can learn? What are things that they can develop from that? And then into that, how do we infuse science, technology, engineering, arts, and math? And I wanted it to be 
something that they felt really, really proud and empowered to do. And so that's really the basis of mycelium is like, how do we take those ancestral traditions and practices, that very place-based knowledge as well, and then like merge science, technology, engineering, arts, and math into that, and then look at issues that we know are coming for climate change. I really like the structural components of your programs, integrating ancestral knowledge with STEAM and allowing students to find the connections that will help them create their own solutions in the face of the challenges of climate change. And also being able to access all the resources of STEAM, which haven't always been available to minority youth. Yeah, and we wanted to actually say that like STEAM you know, in part for us is like of why we're thinking about it in terms of ancestral traditions and practices is that that these are all traditions and practices that are themselves very scientific. It's a different way of thinking about STEM when we put it into an ancestral traditions and practices place. But it's like for us, it's like our communities have always like look at the pyramids that were built in like Central and South America or you know, in other parts of the world, like that's scientific knowledge, like look at the ability to create, like now we know it as permaculture, but to like have a regenerative relationship to the land that is holistic, where we're actually able to treat plant and animal relatives like relatives, like that's a part of STEM, right? And so it is only like when we divorce ourselves from our environment and like, I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to say this, like it feels like there's when we look at a lot of traditional STEM programming, it feels like it is so divorced from us in relationship to one another. It's very abstract and disconnected from the nature that we actually are. And that's a source that we really need to go back to, is to nature and our connection to nature. And then from that route, go on and create STEAM. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Thank you. And so for, for us, that, that becomes really, really important. And then we say, okay, so then what are the things that are already present in the traditions and practices that are STEM-like? And then how do we like bring those into the conversation? And then also for a lot of schools, because we work in so many schools, layer on next generation science standards so that educators who are already feeling overwhelmed and stressed by the amount of sheer work that when they do mycelium programming, that it's something that's also in line with all of the targets targeted goals that they need to hit for standards for their classrooms. And so the majority of our program through our climate resilience schools is like very next generation science standard aligned. It's meant to be very like STEAM heavy. Can you give us some examples of these programs? I really like the clean air, clean water and soil regeneration. And there was one program I saw where your students are actually recording carbon capture in the soils in their gardens. Yeah, so our Climate Resilience Schools is made up of all of our different programming. So it's made up of the cleaner is a right, water is life, growing our health, food, soil, and carbon sequestration, environmental justice 101, eco-mapping our neighborhoods. And so, for example, like Clean Air is a Right really came out of wildfire smoke. And all of our Climate Resilience Schools program is based on how do we adapt to climate change or how do we mitigate the worst of climate change? And we want it to be hands-on projects that students can directly do in their homes. We don't just want it to be something that's, you know, out there in community. We want to tell young people, here's something you can immediately do when these things happen. 
And so, for example, for Clean Air is a Right, that looks like students learning how to read air monitoring data to figure out what do those numbers mean when wildfire smoke happens. It means how do they look at the stuff that is already in their homes? Because oftentimes the air inside of our homes can be more toxic than the air outside of our homes because of all the toxic chemicals we have around us. So they do an assessment of all the toxic chemicals that they might have in their home. And then they create detox boxes, which are natural cleaners, for example, or sprays or things that, you know, can start replacing some of those toxic chemicals that they have in their home. So they create detox boxes. They create a DIY air purifier system, right? Using an air filter and a box fan and saying like, sometimes we can't afford the like high price air filters that they have on Amazon. So here's like an under $50 solution that you can do immediately in your home. Now let's measure air quality when we run this DIY air filter versus, you know, a traditional air purifier that's like really expensive that a lot of frontline communities might not have easy financial access to. It could also be like, let's walk our neighborhood to identify all the medicinal plants that are in our neighborhood. And then let's do soil quality measurements using a tool called Land PKS, which is an app that you can do to tell you how healthy your soil is. Then let's make a medicinal first aid kit using some of the stuff that we might have found either in our neighborhoods or grown in our own garden. So if you breathe in toxic smoke, here's something that you can do that can help your body start shedding some of that. So it's like kind of like a range of like, here's everything that you can do as wildfires are happening to make yourself feel safe. We're starting to like talk to young people about the importance of creating defensible space when wildfire season happens, right? Which is a the like certain parameters that you need to have around your home or your school or your neighborhood or community that can make it so that when wildfires hit, they're not as toxic. Students also learn in Clean Air is Right around the importance of being able to do controlled burns and how that was a tradition that many Native communities still practice to this day and that was outlawed generations ago because people were, the people, the government was really afraid of Native communities doing this. And so there was no healthy appreciation for fire and what fire can do and the necessity to do smaller fires that are controlled in order to avoid these large wildfires that we're seeing. And so it's about like really supporting young people to think deeply about a particular environmental issue. This is so important, what you are saying. I know that in the environmental community and climate change, we are constantly saying that we can't do business as usual. And you're saying we can't do education as usual. So you're really rethinking the context and how to restructure education for the next generation and what they're facing. Yes. And so it is something that I think about a lot because I think that the point of education should be how are we preparing young people for the world that they will inherit? How do we make sure they feel as confident, as empowered, and as ready for the world as it is and as we know that it's going to be? And so we need to, exactly like you're saying, stop doing business as usual because what we're doing right now to young people when we don't do that is we're basically gaslighting them. We're telling them that the reality that they're currently experiencing that they know is going to happen and will continue to happen to them and to their communities doesn't matter. And that what they should focus in on is all the traditional things that schooling is about. And what we're seeing with such high levels of eco-anxiety that young people are experiencing, there was that really great University of Bath study that came out recently that was showing that I think it was like more than 50%, it was like 58 or something percent of students were depressed about the future. They were anxious. Um, A good chunk of students felt that the world was doomed. And so when we ignore students and when we ignore their concerns, we're like failing them at such a significant level that it is staggering. And so we need to start shifting what we do with education because it can be, and it should be a place of empowerment and 
hold space and container for youth to feel whatever it is that they're feeling emotionally, as we all should be holding things emotionally around climate change and that as a loss. But then what are the things that we could start actively doing? Let's get back to my conversation with Lil Milagro Enriquez, Executive Director and Founder of Youth Mycelium Network. Tell us about your Dungeons and Dragons Gaming for Justice programs. Yeah, so like I said at the very beginning, so Mycelium really came out of a group that I was running with students called Dunge- like a Dungeons and Dragons group. At the time I had like a young kid and I was in a PhD program full time and I was working full time as the director of organizing. And it was really, I was really playing Dungeons and Dragons to de-stress. And it was that first group of students that I was was working with that, you know, really encouraged and were like, well, we'll do this thing called mycelium with you a little bit later. And so when the pandemic hit, we immediately, within two weeks of the pandemic hitting, we had virtual programming up and running that was meant to be fun science classes that students could be doing. And, you know, it was like fairly well attended. And I had said like at one of our staff meetings, like, I think I might want to do like a Dungeons and Dragons game virtually and see how that works. And the rest of my staff is very, very cool. And they were like, okay, sure. And then I opened it up as a game. And it was going to be like a social justice D&D and it became our most popular class. Like it was immediately filled. And then we had like several other sessions that we added to it. And then what is so beautiful for me and so exciting for me about something like Dungeons and Dragons is that it is, it is basically like oral storytelling together and we can explore an issue that feels really, really scary in the real world, but in a fantasy setting or in a game setting, it becomes something that you see themselves as leaders in. Right. And I think that that's actually like, I'm a huge video gamer. And I think that that's the beauty of video games as well is that something that might be overwhelming in the real world. Like we can practice and we can kind of try it out there's a lot of conversation that happens in D&D and students are just able to explore different options. They're able to try something, fail, try it again, fail, try it again, succeed, and see what happens when we just create a space that doesn't have to perform in a particular way, that it is only there for students to play and to dream about a different way of being in relationship with the world at a topic that feels scary and to see how students that are, you know, could be really quiet in a regular mycelium class all of a sudden come alive in a Dungeons and Dragons class. And you can be whoever you want in that world. You can explore different parts of your personality. It became so popular that we're like, this is what we want to do. This is actually a core part of what we want to offer as an organization is just a space for young people to freedom dream a different way of being together. And so all of our adventures that we create and we create the adventures that you know we run in our games are all environmental justice focus and so they'll take a moment in the bay area's history or present and we'll create that and turn that into a fantasy setting can you give us an example like one of the scenarios that you've created yeah so we have a the deforestation of oak trees from oakland is a scenario and so they'll learn about the deforestation of oak trees the impact that had on an environment in a fantasy setting. And then they'll figure out what do they want to do to address this as an issue. And then they'll play through it. All of our adventures are drawn by Oakland or Bay Area artists and they're soundtracked by 
Bay Area musicians. And we received a grant through the city of Oakland, the Neighborhood Voices grant, to be able to like have custom art and music so that it was an immersive experience for young people. But yeah, so now we have two sessions currently open and we're in the process of opening up a third for young people and then an adult session because we've had a lot of interest from adults who want to play. I really love that. Also, I see that you are sourcing imagination as an empowerment tool. Yes. It's such a powerful skill that you have that adults start to lose over time. Like it's a, it's a skill you really have to cultivate, but you have it in spades. And to see like the amazing solutions they come up with to things that we didn't think they would come up with. We're like, wait, you want to do this? Okay, like, let's try it out and see what happens. This also makes me think of one of Einstein's quotes about imagination. Something like, logic can get you from A to B, but imagination can take you anywhere. And how important imagination is as a problem-solving tool. And it's also something that I'll say that I think we need more and more of at this moment in time. As we look at something like climate change, Like it feels so daunting because we have such a in many ways, for multiple reasons. But one of the reasons is I think we have a failure of imagination about what we want to create moving forward. And so to have a space that's just there, that doesn't have to, you know, like I said, you don't have to perform in a particular way. You just have to think and dream and play, I think is really, really critical. Right. So you're moving beyond the problem that is in front of you and trying to just solve it or plug a hole in it, but rather recreate a whole landscape, a landscape of solutions and possibilities. That's right. That's right. And then this summer, we're actually going to take one of our games that we've run before, which is Death by a Thousand Breaths, which looks at air pollution, and we're going to play it in real life. So we're going to do something called live action role playing. We're looking at late July, early August, and we want to start building out some of the solutions that students are creating in game in real life. So kind of like breaking that third wall between game life and real life. How many students do you have and how many are you working with in the future? So this school year, we serve about 175 students on a weekly basis with another like 25 to 50, depending on the month of students that we do like one-off programming with, or, you know, if there's a school that just wants us for like a week or something. And then next school year, we're looking at like 200, 225 students weekly across seven schools. Wonderful. So this is something that actually could be scalable and utilized by a larger education community. Yeah. And we're actually like looking currently at how do we move beyond just individual classroom action to like, what does it look like at a school level and at a district level? So what could it look like for students to really grow, not to be too on the nose, but grow the mycelium network itself across like a city or across a district so that they can start to support one another, which is always our goal has been like, how do we create a system in which students at a particular location or community at a particular location can be doing really amazing work, see another school or a location that might have need and be able to send resources that way or be able to share knowledge in that way and vice versa, right? Like if that other school needs support or if that other community needs support, like how are we really growing out what it means to be able to support one another for climate change as we know it's going to happen. And we want youth to have that youth to youth or youth to adult experience that's beyond just their individual classroom or individual school. Because I think it's really easy to feel alone when it's just you in your individual classroom or even in your individual school. And there's so many people doing amazing work across the state, across the nation. Think about like, how do we grow that network, both for being able to support one another in resources, but also just for the hope that is present when we're not alone.
Well, that is actually networking on a whole other level. I was also speaking about how youth participation is very key to your program because I think we need to hear that. We need to hear these voices, need to hear the voices of youth, the voices of women, and so many people who have been left out of this conversation. So how are the youth that you're working with, are they using these platforms and opportunities? Are they learning how to step forward and speak for the work and what they believe in? Yeah. So right now, what we do with students is we have like a pre and post survey to like kind of get a gauge of where students are at. And generally, like students feel much more empowered at like high levels when they go through our programming. And we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that just suggests that students unsurprisingly feel supported when they actually get to talk about the things that they're concerned about and when then when they're given institutional and infrastructural power to make those changes in our lives. And that's why it was really important for us to create like our youth leadership council because we're like, let's give youth power. Let's just not talk about the things and like give them tools on what they can do, but like let's give them power to use their imaginations to be able to create something different and to be able to create resilience in their neighborhoods or schools. And one of the things that we're currently looking at for the fall is doing a study of like, what are the impacts? What's the social emotional impact of our programming? What are the learning impacts of our programming? So that, you know, whether it's through mycelium or another organization or just like a teacher in a classroom or in a school running programming is like, we strongly believe that we need to talk about climate change with young people. We need to have these open conversations that we're only creating fear and anxiety when we don't address it, even if we don't have the answer to what it needs to look like. And then our assumption going into our study this upcoming fall is that the more conversation, the more power you give young people to feel like they can make change and make that change in their communities, the better their learning outcomes, the better their social emotional health. And, you know, ideally, like the more hope they have for the future to be able to see themselves in a future that feels exciting for them rather than like what so many young people are experiencing right now, which is just a fear. Thank you, Lil. That was really beautiful. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about your program? Yeah, I think that, like I said, like we really want to see more and more people just having open conversations with young people. I think that there's, I hear a lot from adults that they're really nervous because they don't want to scare young people. And I think that for us, young people are already seeing, they're super smart super smart. They're already seeing it. They're already living through it. And that anytime there's a situation with a young person or a person, whoever it is, is experiencing an issue, whether that's, you know, environmental racism or classism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, that we need to give them the language on how to think about it. And that it can feel really uncomfortable for us as adults to talk about something that we ourselves are really scared or terrified to talk about. And there is solidarity that's built and relationships that are built when we have those difficult conversations, even when we as adults might not know the answers. And I think that it's okay to tell young people, I don't know the answer to that, but like, let's look it up together. And so it's like less what I would want people to know about mycelium, but just like a strong desire to have adults out there be able to sit with their own climate grief and to be able to have the kinds of conversations that so many young people are really, really hungry to have and that they want to have around these topics. And in doing that and and being able to have those initial conversations, then we can actually start building solutions together. Then we can build something that feels really strong and really, really meaningful because I, I really think that the world right now is in a process of remaking itself and 
it's really up to us to decide what shape that will look like and the conversations we're open to having and willing to have. So I would just really strongly encourage listeners to have those conversations and that it's okay for it to be uncomfortable, but it still needs to be done. So it's all right to be uncomfortable. Good point. So how do you, you're a mother and you're thinking about the future, and this is not to be exclusive, but asking mothers who are so engaged in the next generation, how do you envision the future for your children? Oh, that's a great question. It's a hard question. I think that there's, you know, climate change is a field that's not going to get better, (laughs) you know, like working in climate change. And so I feel most connected and I feel most hopeful when I'm in community with people actively doing something, whether that's like at a march or at an action, I think, or, just being even in a meeting when we're thinking about like what we want to do moving forward. And so for me, like that hope for a future, like feels very like action oriented, right? It feels like it's an active verb that needs to be present because otherwise it is so easy for me on a personal level to feel really, really sad and to just sit with that grief. But when I'm around other people, when we're talking about things that feel difficult or when we're just like, holding space for one another. I feel like even as things are getting worse that I'm not alone. And that that feeling of being not alone, I think is important. And I want to give that to my children. And so, you know, my son the other day, he's nine years old and he was talking about how scared he was about the future. And I said, like, I hear that by sitting with that. And there's so many people doing amazing work on this issue. Like, let's talk to them it's still going to be hard and it's not like a magic wand and I don't expect it to be a magic wand that all of a sudden he feels better, but I want them to see that it, that it is an active practice every single day and that it is a choice that we make every single day to have it be an active practice that can support us. And that some days are just going to be hard and that's just what they are. And we support one another when those days are hard, but that the days that it feels like we can do something, we should be actively trying to do something. And I think that, so for me, it's hard for me to see like a perfect future, but what I can see is a sense of deep community and relationship and connection with one another. And I, and that's what I really want to pass on for whatever the future holds to my children is that they feel there's, they're always in community and they're always being held and they're able to do that for others to whatever end. So beautifully said. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation because what you're doing and what you've said, so many people are doing amazing things to really rethink how we can do this and support and connect with each other. And in that vein, uh, we will post a link to Mycelium Youth Network on our website and encourage listeners to check out your work. So I, I like to ask my guests to share with us the names of any other women environmentalists who may have inspired you or who inspire you now? Yeah. So the person that inspires me most, I don't know if she identifies necessarily as an environmentalist, but the person I think about the most and inspires me the most is one of my best friends, Dara Burwell. And she does anti-oppression training, which is very different than, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's like, how do we think deeply about the roots of an issue? And then how do we actively at every single level start uncovering how that has looked like and then create, you know, practices that can be better. And part of why she inspires me is because, 
she consistently creates a culture where we can call each other in and where we can have hard conversations. And the goal is not to be perfect or to get everything exactly right. The goal is to continue to try and to continue to enter into those conversations and to think in an intersectional way about how uh, reproductive rights are environmental rights, women's rights are environmental rights, queer rights are environmental rights. So how are we thinking intersectionally about an issue and that it's all connected and that we need to be able to see it as all connected to be able to to make change and that different people are doing different parts of that work. And just because we're doing completely different parts of the work doesn't mean that the work is not so good and it's not still working to unravel this larger system. But I always think about her and how she creates that space. Cause I, I hope that like in whatever space that like I create or that like our educators at mycelium create that we're, they were okay having those hard conversations and we're modeling what it's like to not have all the answers and to not be perfect and to mess up and then apologize and then try again, you know? And so She's the person that I most think of, though. Lil, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a real pleasure and inspiration to hear about your work at Mycelium Youth Network. Thank you, and thank you to your students. Yes, thank you. I appreciate being here. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the evoicesrising.com website Listen to the podcast on podcast channels and follow us on Instagram. This is an independent media production that supports the solutions that are being created by individuals and organizations who are passionate about creating a just, equitable, and livable planet for all beings. Until next time. Music.